Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet to cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Money is the end result of what we get after serving the world. So instead of focusing on what you get, you have to really focus on what you give. There are people who are successful who come from wealthy families, but mega, mega wealthy families, the wealthiest families in the in the country, in any given country, in any given time, generally they don't produce the, 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 the superstars. We grow up with these things I call invisible scripts. And these are the scripts that are beliefs that are so powerful we don't even realize that they're they're around us. That's why they're invisible. Everybody should always ask themselves if they want to grow and they just don't want to just whatever is, is say, where can I be in five years? If I can't be at this position in five years, then this isn't a good career path for me. The, the fascinating opportunity that we have now is that the, the ability to define new values, to distribute goods, to make decisions has, has never been greater. Western people tend to think that I need more money to be happy, but instead Zen approach is how can you find satisfaction in what you have? So it's not a matter of how much money you make or how much money you have. It's more about your attitude toward money. And the relationship you have with money uh, gives you happiness or miserable life. So you really have to be careful with what you have. What are some of the tenets of Zen? So I studied Zen. I, I got really hardcore into Taoism when I was younger, mm-hmm. like way hardcore, mm-hmm. uh, which led me then to studying Buddhism. I, I would definitely never claim to say that I practiced it, but studied Buddhism um, a fair amount. Zen, I found maybe the most intriguing but confusing. What yes. are some of the like core tenets of Zen? So um, I had this opportunity to meet my mentor um, later on uh, his name is Wahe Takeda. So when I asked him to teach about money, he said his first lesson is forget about money. <laughs> so I was so confused. Yeah, one of the things that I found super um, confusing, and people, so the where I was going is the notion of a Zen Cohen. And this is something that people probably in the U.S. anyway be tangentially familiar with. Mm-hmm. The most famous one we talk about is what is the sound of one hand clapping? Mm-hmm. Um and there are many Zen koans which are like, 
beyond confusing. And of course, the idea is once you understand sort of the absurdity of the question itself, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm doing this from a logical perspective, and Zen mm. is, I think, meant to be very different than that. But um, just to give people an anchor point, once you understand the absurdity of the question, then it's like you're a step closer to enlightenment. Um, so when he said forget about money, what was he what was he trying to get you to? Like, what does that mean? Because obviously it's not truly forget that it exists. Yes. So what does he mean? So I think uh, he meant about uh, where I focus. Because if you want money, you have to forget about money. You have to forget about what you can give to other people, how much service you can give out to the world, and then you receive money. So he was telling me not to focus on money because money is the end result of what we get after serving the world. So instead of focusing on what you get, you have to really focus on what you give. And, and, and the, our life is in the middle of giving and receiving. So unless we receive well, unless we, we give well, we can receive. So we are in this cycle of appreciation or, or resentment. Um, either cycle you're in, um, your life exists. So uh, if you start appreciating your life about everything, including money, your life will be filled with money and appreciation. If your life will be filled with resentment, anger, and fear around money and also around life, your life will be also surrounded by life, uh, fear and resentment and anxiety. So he taught me how to focus instead of uh, just getting the end result of money. And he was very well respected because he was talking about philanthropy. So I'm teaching uh, about happiness and money ever since. Yeah, that the idea that he's been so incredibly successful obviously lends a lot of credence um, to the things that he says. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I wanted to understand better about his teachings to you and your teachings, you've written so prolifically. Mm -hmm. What What is it like? How does it get that big? How does the topic sort of expand so far? What is it that people are getting wrong? And what are some of the like universal principles that are going to lead people to, um, I'll say wealth, and it's probably worth defining. How would you define wealth? And then we'll go back to those two questions. In my mind, wealth is uh, an emotion. You know, it doesn't really matter how much you have, how much you make. Because I've interviewed over the course of my career, I've interviewed many millionaires and billionaires, and some of them are very unhappy and very upset with everything. I'm sure you've met some happy ones and very unhappy ones. So, uh, and also among the people uh, who are struggling with life, there are also happy people and unhappy people. So I think wealth is an attitude. If you feel like you're so happy and so content with what you have, you are already wealthy. But if you have, uh, uh, you have, if you have to struggle every day, and you cannot find happiness uh, either in your business or in personal life, I think you're not wealthy, even if you have billions in your bank account. But that doesn't mean that you don't have to have money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I like about your approach: is there there is a recognition. So part of the reason that I think that people continue to strive for money, um, I lived the nightmare of money can't buy you happiness. I had heard a thousand people tell me that money wasn't going to buy me happiness, that you know pursuing money outright was going to end up being a problem, and I still had to do it. And when I ran into the wall of, oh, really, truly, money cannot buy you happiness, how is it that I ended up here 
when all the people told me that this was going to be the outcome, why did I have to walk this path? Like, why couldn't I just accept their wisdom? And I realized that one of the things that people don't talk about is that money really is powerful. Money is, you call it energy. Um, I'll call it power. Like money gives you the ability to close your eyes, imagine something that you want to create and then open your eyes and actually be able to do it. And if you have the skill set, of course. Yeah. And so there, there's real utility in money. And when people talk about, in, and I've heard you say before, I don't want to get too spiritual. Like I want to keep this grounded. And I mm -hmm. think that that's really important because if you tell people, hey, forget about money because money doesn't matter, there's going to be a turnoff. But if you yes. tell people, hey, forget about money because it's going to reorient your mindset, it's going to change your behaviors, it's going to align your behaviors to something that's actually going to allow you to generate actual money, mm -hmm. then I think that it draws people in a little bit more. So with that context, I want to go back to the two questions. So what are the mistakes that people make and what are some universal things people need to understand if they actually want to be wealthy in the way that you just defined? Mm -hmm. So I think most of us, the, uh, the biggest problem, I think, especially today, is that we are so afraid of money. And so as much as we want money, we are so scared of it. So uh, why do you say that? I think that that hit me is very counterintuitive. Why? Why do you think people are scared of money? It's because of a money trauma. I call it money wounds that we we've had since our childhood. We used to have some uh, unless your parents are perfect. And we, <laughs> unfortunately, it's not the case in, in, in any any culture. So we've been scolded about money. You know, we spent too much, we wasted the money, or we denied a karate lesson or soccer lesson or a ballet lesson or piano lessons because it's expensive. Some of my friends were taught, you are not worth it. <laughs> well, that's like, that's a big blow. So uh, we've been denied so many times around money. So that's why as much as we want money because we, we feel uh, money can buy happiness or money money can buy at least freedom. But at the same time, money uh, have been abused, abused us for so many ways. So as much as we want to get close to it, but if we get too close to it, we get burns or like hurt. So uh, for a lot of people, money is a mystery person. I attribute a lot of my success to luck and a lot of that uh, to also coming from modest means. If you grow up in an extremely wealthy family, if your father is worth $10 billion, you might not have the drive to do the kind of things you need to do to win a Nobel Prize or a Pulitzer Prize or something else. If you grow up in a modest family, uh, you know if you're gonna get anywhere in life, you gotta do it on your own. And so when you're growing up in, in a not a wealthy family, you might not think it's an advantage, but actually is a big advantage. Because you know if you're gonna get anywhere, you've gotta do it on your own. And when you get to do it on your own and you do succeed, people are gonna say, well, you did it on your own, not because your father or your mother. I'd love to push on that a little bit. So I've heard you in interviews talk about that before. And what is it about growing up wealthy that placates people? And what is it growing up because I don't, I mean, you've always said that one of the greatest things that ever happened to you was having two parents that loved you unconditionally. So you had that, which I'm sure would have been incredibly beautiful. Um, so what was missing that made you so hungry? And then if money isn't the sort of end all be all, it doesn't deliver happiness. Why aren't people hungry when they have wealth? Well, on that question, I think if you know that you are not going to starve or you're not going to be on the street. Uh, because your father or mother is very wealthy, I don't think you have quite the drive. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. 
There are people who are successful who come from wealthy families, but mega, mega wealthy families, the wealthiest families in the, in the country, in any given country, in any given time, generally they don't produce the, 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 the superstars. So look at the people who are the most successful people today in our society, in politics or business, athletics, whatever it might be. Usually they didn't come from a Forbes 400 family as a general rule of thumb. So in, in my own case, I came from modest means, as you, as you alluded to. My father wasn't a high school graduate, or near, nor was my mother. Um, Bill Gates is gonna has three children. They all seem to be well-adjusted. They all seem to be doing well. Whether they can produce the kind of great success that he produced, who knows? But if they, they do, people will say, well, sure, his father was Bill Gates. So my own case, I have three children. They're all extremely well-educated in the best schools, Harvard, Duke, Stanford, and so forth. But you know, whatever they achieve, sometimes people will say, well, maybe it's because their father was helpful or your father was wealthy. Now, they wouldn't say that's really fair, and maybe they're right, but there's no doubt that people will think that. Do you think that deflates them? Because I would think, well, now they have something to push back on to achieve at a level to show people I got out from under my dad's shadow. Um, why doesn't that drive them to do even more? Well, I think it's complicated for a, uh, less complicated for a girl than a boy. I think if you're a man and you have a son, um, the son probably is going to be seen as more in the shadow of a very prominent father. Um, I think it's a little bit different for daughters for lots of reasons I could explain. So maybe it's not quite as challenging. But, you know, of course, uh, you've seen many times where famous men have children who say or sons and daughters who I say, I don't want anything with a family business. I want to be on my own. I don't want anything to do with uh, the family's wealth. And sometimes these people have nice lives. They don't generally don't change the world in quite the way that maybe the father or the mother did. Did you think about when you were raising your kids? This is one of the reasons I don't have kids, by the way, was so growing up. Um, my parents couldn't give me all the things that I wanted, but I always had food. My parents loved me to death. So I'm beyond fortunate with how I grew up, but there was something about not being able to have the things that I wanted, um, that really pushed me to achieve more than anybody in my family had achieved. And so when I generated wealth in my own life and thought about raising kids that grew up in a family that would have been affluent, I really worried about having to artificially create an environment that was difficult for them in order for them to succeed. I wasn't sure that I had the fortitude, if I'm honest, to create hardships for them where I didn't need to. Did you think about that? Like, have you done things to sort of make it, quote unquote, difficult on your kids? Well, uh, I wasn't quite as wealthy as I later became when I was having my children. I was reasonably wealthy by normal human standards, but not by the standards of today. So I tried very much to shield them from the wealth, but eventually they figured it out and, you know, they, you know, they, they kind of accepted it. They, they, I wasn't giving them gigantic trust funds or buying them lots of things that they really didn't need. So I think they got a good education and that's probably the best you can do. But as you suggest, right, raising children is complicated. As, as you may have heard me say, raising children is a complicated thing. And if you mess up raising your children, nothing else in life really matters. And it's true. Your ultimate legacy is not a building named after you or a scholarship named after you, or, but it's your children in many ways. And so they're going to be around a lot longer than you are in most cases. And, you know, raising children is challenging for wealthy people. As we have seen, many people, uh, you live in California, uh, many people are very famous Hollywood types. They have famously had some, you know, let's say, less successful children than they might have wanted in some cases because they have a lot of wealth and a lot of uh, things that, that are not necessarily conducive to great success. 
out of curiosity, what are the things that are conducive to great success beyond money? Because you've talked very eloquently about, you know, billionaires being some of the most tortured people that you've met. What, what are those things that lead somebody to be quote unquote successful? Well, in my view, success is happiness. The most elusive thing in life is personal happiness. Thomas Jefferson wrote about the pursuit of happiness. He never told us how to actually get it. But finding somebody that's happy with their life is really, really good. So if you have a meet a poor person and they are very happy with what they're doing, why should you say your, your life isn't successful? They're very happy with what they're doing. If you meet a very wealthy person and he or she is tortured with their money and they don't know what to do with it, their children hate them, everybody hates them. Is that person successful? I don't really think so. I think success comes about when you are happy because that's the point of life to some extent is being happy. That's why we're all here, I guess, to some extent. We want to make the life better for other people. But to some extent, if you are um, making life better for other people, you're going to be happy in my view. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet to cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. 
If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. How do you deal with the transient nature of happiness? And do you distinguish between happiness and, say, fulfillment? Well, sure. Happiness can be a momentary thing in some cases. You're happy that something happened, a uh, big success happened here. You did something, you got an award or something. Uh, your children call you up and say they're proud of you if that ever happens. But fulfillment means that you're content. And contentment really is a more long-lasting kind of thing. You know, to be fulfilled, I think, is being uh, is something that can goes on for quite some time. Happiness can be more transitory. You're happy one day, you're unhappy the next day. But when you're fulfilled, I think it's a more long-lasting and probably a better thing. So how did you craft that message for your kids? One thing that it seems like you've really established yourself as in your career is somebody who's deeply persuasive, able to, like you said, a good leader, get people to go somewhere that's going to be good for them. How did you set your kids up for that, for pursuing happiness or fulfillment? There was a famous book that uh, was written called Presidential Power, and in it, it was written by a man named Richard Neustadt, and he said, look, president doesn't have that much power. He only has the power to persuade. And uh, as I thought about it, that's what life is all about, persuading somebody to do something. Go on your show, read your book, uh, greet with your theories. Life is all about persuading people. Even Albert Einstein couldn't come up with E equals MC squared, and everybody said, you're right. He had to go persuade people that he was correct about that. So persuasion is very important. So there are three ways to persuade and communicate. One, orally, you're a good talker. You're Martin Luther King. You're Abraham Lincoln. A good writer, you're Mark Twain. You write very well. But the most powerful way is by leading by example, persuading by example. So with my kids, I was a hard worker, and I tried to educate them about the value of hard work. I read a lot. I tried to educate them about the value of reading, uh, treating other people well. I tried to educate them. But children learn by seeing what their parents do. If your parents are, are, are doing certain things and they're telling kids to do the opposite, that's probably not going to work. So you have to kind of do what you're, you're trying to get your p- kids to do and lead by example. Now, nobody's a perfect parent. And I'm certainly not. But, um, I, you know, trying to lead by example is probably what I tried to do. And and to some extent, uh, it worked. And, you know, my kids are not perfect. I'm not perfect. And everybody has their flaws. But I think generally they're reasonably happy and generally they're reasonably successful by normal human standards at this stage in their life. We grow up with these things I call invisible scripts. And these are the scripts that are beliefs that are so powerful we don't even realize that they're, they're around us. That's why they're invisible. So a classic one in America is the American dream is buying a house. Where did that come from? And in fact, there's all these phrases that people use like, uh, you're throwing money away on rent. They don't make more land, you know, and on, on, and on. If you really deconstruct that and you actually run the numbers, you might discover that actually buying a house is often not the best investment. And this is super counterintuitive. People get really mad because real estate is religion in America. But if you actually dive in deep, you might discover, wow, there's a lot of parties who want me to spend a ton of money. That's why, for example, I could buy today, but I rent. Mm. And when people hear that, they're like, wait, I thought the I will teach you to be rich guys, rich, so why is he renting? They get very confused because real estate is religion. You know, another thing that is um, really common today for people is there's no way to get ahead, right? Especially for young people. Social security won't be around, et cetera, et cetera. 
And I just don't believe in that. I think if you go onto Reddit or you go onto these places where it's a, it's a lot of people who are um, disaffected young people, they create an echo chamber mm. of other people who want to victimize themselves, then you have a choice. Do you want to be reading those threads? Or like I was reading the comments on your YouTube videos. I was like, these are the best YouTube comments I've ever seen. People are positive, constructive. They're pointing out things they saw in the 32nd minute of the video, meaning they actually watched the whole thing. Those are the kind of people that I want people to be around. So it's not impossible to make money. There's actually a lot of people making money. It's not impossible to get ahead, pay off debt, even invest and grow. There's a lot of people doing it. But if you're surrounded by people who constantly complain about how difficult it is and it's impossible, guess what? You're going to absorb those invisible scripts. Dude, that shit really terrifies me. And when I think about, so I'm a child of the 80s and I was just talking to a a good friend of mine who I grew up with and he was like, oh, I knew you'd be rich one day. And I grew up teetering white collar, blue collar. So like I was definitely not set up to be wealthy. I didn't know anybody who was wealthy, didn't know anybody who had been successful. And he was like, oh, I knew you were going to be rich. And I was like, why? And he said, because you get what you believe in. And he said, you believed money was like a thing, that it was super powerful. He said, you used to talk about it all the fucking time. Interesting. And of course, I anybody that knows my story knows for decades, I chased money. It was my stated goal. I wasn't, that didn't feel weird to me. I was just like, yeah, I want to be rich. And I was pursuing that doggedly. Yeah. And of course, only end up getting rich once I let go of like understanding that that wasn't going to make me happy. So mm. I set that aside. But because I had all these positive beliefs about that it was possible, that yeah. it could happen to anybody, mm-hmm. I never thought to not chase it. Yeah. And so the company that my partners and I built that ended up being the billion dollar success and just like crazy, we started it in 2009 at like the height of the recession. And so it's like, it just never occurred to me to, to think that way. And you said something in one of your talks in the book, I can't remember which place, but was like, even in those moments, People can be successful, but if you're telling yourself that you're not going to be successful, then you don't take the actions. Yeah. Walk me through, like, how do you get through to people who have these scripts, they're shutting down, they're not taking those steps. Like, do you have sort of entry level movements for them? For sure. Many of us, if, if you take somebody and you just talk, I, I do this a lot. They'll be at one of my talks or they are on my newsletter or following me on Instagram and, uh, I'll give you an amazing example that just happened recently. I had a woman who wrote me and she said, Ramit, can you help me convince my husband not to waste money? And I go, okay, what's going on? She goes, he spends so much money on iced tea. And I was like, here we go. (laughs) I go, how much money? And she goes, he buys iced tea 20 times a month, like almost every day. I said, how much is this iced tea? She said, it's $1.50 each time. So in my head, I'm like, this is insane. Like, why are we even talking about this? But I knew there's something here, so I want to unpack it. I said, out of curiosity, what's your household income? No response for 20 minutes, okay? And then finally she comes back, she goes, I'm not comfortable sharing that. I said, just give me a range. Okay, what do you think her, her and her husband's household income is? I know the story. I, I would have guessed otherwise. 80,000, 100,000. Like a nice 600,000. And the, this is a perfect example. Like rationally and logically, we should literally not be talking about this because it's a rounding error. But there's something going on in her belief system mm. that made her fixate on iced tea. And so for anybody, whether it's iced tea or whether it's, you know, lattes is a classic example. Everybody tells you not to spend money. I'm like, that's the worst advice ever. Buy as many lattes as you want. (laughs) 
Or some people, they just love, for example, clothes, mm. right? I like clothes. They love it, but everybody around them has told them things like, that's shallow, that's a waste of money, you should invest in your Roth IRA. And so what do they do? All of us, we're torn apart because we live in a paradoxical society that is both puritanical, telling us we should retreat into a cave and do nothing, but then we go on Instagram and everyone's in Bora Bora <laughs> wearing, it's ridiculous. And so what do we do? We just buy everything and then we feel guilty. It's the worst possible response. So what I do is first I say, what do you love spending money on? Mm. Love. And nobody talks about this. They always say, oh, let me see your budget. You're overspending. And everyone's just like, ah, forget this. Right? I'll never come on here and berate someone for their spending because I've seen it all. When they talk about what they love, then I say, what would it feel like to be able to spend two times or four times as much on that? Mm. And people have never thought like that. Then, once we start from a place of aspiration of what do we want, let's work through the mechanics of how to get there. Dude, I love that so much. And in, in your book, you talk about like starting with what you want instead of what you don't want. Yes. You also talk about like what's that money dial? What's the thing like for you yeah. that you really get amped up about? And I was like, the funny thing is, so I'm doing this research. You have to imagine this. I'm doing this research in a room that I like don't usually let people go into. Okay. And it's known as the comic room. Okay. And if you go in the comic book room, you will see there it's just like stacked Ooh, of like comics everywhere. Okay. And that's my my iced tea. Like if my wife were gonna complain about what does Tom spend his money on outside of the business, of course, it's that. Like Now I, why do you love those comic books? Well, that's, that's a very involved story. But I will say that there's something unique about comic books that give you um, these really big ideas very rapidly. Okay, love it. And then let, let, me, let me share this story that just happened a couple days ago here in LA. Um, I was giving a talk and I asked somebody what, what they love spending on, and she said, clothes. She said she loves buying clothes. I said, great, and she was so excited. I love just, whenever you ask people, their eyes light up. Mm. And I asked her, what would it look like uh, if you quadrupled your spending? And she said, I would have clothes everywhere. Like, all day long, I'd be ordering online, I'd be sending half of them back. And I said, where do you shop? And she said, Top Shop. And I said, okay, so you quadrupled your spending, where would you shop? She said, Top Shop, I just have a lot more. And it was fascinating because when you ask people what they love spending on and what, if they could spend more, what would they do? Most people have never thought about it. She had limited herself into the box of Topshop. Now, I don't know, Topshop's perfectly fine, that's fine. But I guarantee you, if you quadrupled or 10X your spending on the thing you love, your money dial, you might shop at a different brand. You might even fly to the factory that makes them and get a behind the scenes tour as I did when we went on our honeymoon. So wh wh why I'm sharing this is that so many of us operate in a linear way. Oh, if I have this thing I like, I like coffee, I might get two coffees a day. But what if you actually truly love it? You might go to the coffee factory and bring your family with you. So there's this whole idea of what you can do with a rich life. And it doesn't just mean more stuff. It could be experiences. It could be security, like buying a house in a place that keeps you safe or staying at a hotel where you're around things that are comfortable for you. There's so many different ways to look at a rich life. And most people, I want to challenge them to really think what it would feel like to spend more on the thing they love. Of course, if they cut costs mercilessly on the things they don't. Mm -hmm. Everybody should always ask themselves if they want to grow and they just don't want to just whatever is, is say, where can I be in five years? 
if I can't be at this position in five years, then this isn't a good career path for me. I think everything is career path. Mm, I'd love to talk about that. So your career path is crazy and awe-inspiring. So how much of that was mapped out? Like when you had that single restaurant in Texas, how big were you dreaming? Were you already thinking aquariums? Like how much of this is you're just going and you're taking a, a deal as it comes? How much of it is you discovered as you went? Let's do it another way. Let's go back to 10 years old. I walked around with my, my business, my briefcase, uh, full of business. There was no business in it, but I wanted to be a business guy, but you really didn't know what it was. By junior high, I was buying candy and reselling it at school. By high school, I was already trading on the stock market. So let's take these one at a time. So the candy sales. <laughs> Who gave you that idea? Did you just understand, oh, if I can buy it for less than I sell it, then I can make money? That's just, hey, doing whatever it took to make money. I always wanted to make money. I always had money, even when I was a kid, because I always worked whatever job I could find, whether it was... Uh, uh, mowing somebody's yard or washing cars or selling lemonade uh, to the construction workers. Uh, it was just always about making money. What made you good at selling? That is a very particular skill. You know, I, I'm, even today, it's, it's all about, somebody said, why are you so successful? Because I sell. And even when you go out and you raise billions of dollars in debt, and you're meeting with debt holders, you're still selling yourself. That's what it's all about. You're not just selling the deal. When I was public for 18 years, okay, and you're selling equity, uh, I did five follow-on offerings, the most a restaurant company ever did when I was public. And, uh, and, and you are selling yourself. And, and, and you, know, you know your numbers, you know your business, and you make yourself that you know more than everybody else, even if you don't. <laughs> To dig beyond the sort of mythology of just the kid carrying the briefcase and, oh, this comes naturally, at some point this becomes somewhat systematic. So if you're going to be a sponge, you have to put yourself in a position to be a sponge. You have to know who to listen to, who to ignore. How did you begin to formulate that, and um, what does that process well, look like now? Well, I knew how to make money, and so at 21, I sold vitamins. I started building homes, building shopping centers. Uh, by the time I was 26, I built my first hotel. By the time I was 25, I told myself I'll have my first jet at 35, and I did. Uh, so uh, I was an investor in a restaurant, uh, and then when the world collapsed in the late 80s, uh, you couldn't develop anything in Texas for the next 10 years. That's when every SNL failed, like I said, every bank failed. And I just started opening restaurants and did that between like 86 and 92 and then 93. I said, well, you know what I'll do? I'll just build restaurants because I understand this business. But since you can't develop anymore and I'll take it public because that's when the whole big thing of restaurant chains going public. Did that for the next 17 years and uh, then was an opportunist, which I always talk about is that my stock crashed with everybody else in 08 and 09. When I took it public, I owned 100% in 93. You wake up, you're worth $100 million. I took it private in 09, and you're worth $500 million. I was very successful, bought it right, and then you know I could really grow then because I didn't have the handcuffs of being a public company. Mm. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. 
Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. And when you think about the fundamentals of a business, when you're going in to evaluate a deal or whatever, what like key things do you look for? Well, everything is uh, occupancy cost, uh, term of lease, do they own any real estate? Uh, What are their margins? Uh, I'm not real smart, but I know how to do that. Okay, I can analyze the numbers of any business and tell you what your margin should be or whatever because my production cost is this. I have this many subscribers. You should be doing this or that. And I don't care what the business is. So that's what I know how to do. And so if I try to make the right deal and I do heavy due diligence and and then hopefully you can continue to grow your net worth. And if somebody wanted to get good at what you're good at, what would you recommend they do? You know, I think you know if you know business or not. And people ask me, should I go get my MBA? And you know what I usually tell them? You know if you need to go get your MBA. If you don't have it inside of you and you understand economics and finance and, and, and operations of business, then you need to go get it. I knew that I didn't need it. It was just a God-given gift. But also, remember, I didn't get a lot of those other gifts. Don't ask me to play that guitar. Don't ask me to sing you a song. And don't ask me to draw you anything. But, but you've got to know your God-given gifts. And everybody has it. Everybody in this room has it right here. So do what you know was your God-given gift and find a way to use that as your path. So when you think about um, somebody stepping into a career and building something, obviously there's an element of, okay, you need to figure out what you're good at, what you're not good at. Um, do you believe that people can improve the things that they're not good at? Should they just entirely not think about that and partner with people that have a different skill set? Um, you've said do not partner with somebody that has the same skill set. You read the book. You, you read of the course, book. Of course. I, I, absolutely. But at the same time, uh, I've made myself, you know, understand uh, IT, information technology. And if you talk to any CEO of any company, they'll tell you that's the one department that you do not want to, uh, because no matter who you bring in, everybody has their own way of doing it. And, and I've just still made myself uh, understand technology, even though I'm not a millennial. I try to at least know a little bit about every single department, even if I don't know it a lot. And so walk me through, you want to learn about IT, what do you do? You Googling it or do you go sit down with the head of IT and say, teach me everything? No, I just, I, I, I want to I know everything. I want to understand this, you know, you know, malware, how people are, are getting into all of our systems and hackiness. And, and, uh, What's I, your I just, process for learning though? 
sitting down and say, you got to make me smarter on this. You got to, you got to help me through these steps because I don't get it. Don't go into too much minutia because you'll lose me because I'm not that smart, but you got to give me the steps of why this is happening or not happening. And that's something that everybody should do. You don't have to understand, you know, that I'm going to go and be able to program something or, or write something, but, but we should all, if we're running a company, understand some portion of it. Uh, when I'm shooting Billion Dollar Buyer, I know what all these different people do and exactly what they're doing and how important, you know, each person is. And, and uh, it's just trying to understand what you do and it makes you appreciate that person and how smart they are at that job, too, and how important they are to your company. All right. Let's say I'm one of your kids. I want to take over the business one day. What how are you going to help me absorb the business fundamentals? Is it just follow you around? Is it you're going to hand me a list of Tillmanisms? Like, what does that process this, look like? This is, this is a really great question that you just asked because I've had people say to me, why don't you let your kids work for me for a while instead of just working for you? And then other people say, you should put them in one department and let them learn that department. And, and, uh, and, you know what I've said, and I really think I'm doing it right, and we'll see, only time will tell. There's so many departments. You're talking about a $4 billion revenue company with 60,000 employees and $700 million in EBITDA that does everything from, you know, I have 25 biologists that work for me at aquariums. So everything from aquariums to amusement parks to five casinos to restaurants to uh, an NBA basketball team, okay? Just everything you can think of. I'm teaching them to make decisions because that's really what it's all about is learn how to make decisions, see how I make decisions every day about everything, whether it's a little decision or a big decision. And they've been doing that with me and they, they're pretty smart. We don't know that we could run this without you. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting because it's just... It's them sitting in meetings and seeing how I make decisions is the best thing I can do for them. I think that um, over the last 50 years, we've become obsessed with um, financial growth. And and it's- Maybe as a country or as a globe? I would say the West primarily. I would say the West and that that has had a lot of power. It, It began in the U.S., um, and, and this belief that all decisions, uh, like I believe there's an implicit belief that the, the correct choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And I've been in enough executive meetings at Kickstarter and, and other companies where routinely you face 50, 50 decisions where option a has a clear financial outcome. And then there's some downsides that are hard to quantify, but like they're there. And there's option B that has a lesser financial outcome and less of those, and also less of those downsides. And nine times out of ten, they're going to choose option A because uh, it's justifiable. You can only defend option B in a crisis where you feel like you have to apologize. That's the only time you generally go for the one that's not maxing out for that. And it sounds innocent enough. It sounds innocent enough. But when that happens repeatedly, uh, you see a decay in, in other spaces. But 
I think our focus on financial value has been has been perfectly rational. You know, there's like a Keynesian like economic argument, Milton Friedman argument for like the rationality of financial value. GDP does correlate to many positive things about society. There's a lot there for sure. It's not like we've been off the rails wrong, uh, but it's gotten out of control. And the the fascinating opportunity that we have now is that the the ability to define new values to distribute goods, to make decisions has, has never been greater, right? Technology, technology allows us to measure things in such more intricate ways. Like if you can imagine in the past, someone says, let's, let's make a decision other than money. It's like, okay, well, what, what are we looking at? What are, what are we counting here? It's, it's hard to say. But in the book, I give an example of Adele, the pop star Adele. Um, she goes on tour. Uh, when her tickets go on sale, they immediately get bought by scalpers, and then people have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Adele found this startup that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to her as an artist. It analyzed their listening data, whatever, and allowed her to invite the top 20 percentile Adele fans in each market, offer them a ticket for 50 bucks. Um, they could resell the ticket if they want, but and the show's still Adele made money. But the idea was that for maximizing for this loyal communal value set, that there would be a different kind of experience. One thing that I think is important to note about that story is that, and you talk about this in the book, that artists can actually cooperate with Ticketmaster, maybe others, to actually get a portion of the scalped price. So it's not like yes. for Adele it didn't matter. She actually could have benefited benefited from that, which I, I found, it made the argument even more compelling to me. Yeah. And so for Adele, Adele is just looking at this with a, a different value set, right? She's still thinking of her self-interest, like she's playing shows, she's like making money. Um, but yet what she is optimizing for is not her own take. She's optimizing for a fan's experience. And and again, it sounds very basic, but like to do this in a way that's mathematical, that's replicable, that's scalable, uh, to me suggests a different kind of transaction and a different kind of decision where um, it is building on top of that financial value. Like this wouldn't work for Adele if she was losing money every show, right? Like that, that wouldn't work. She's satisfying a threshold. But the point is that she's only trying to satisfy that threshold and the opportunity she sees is a layer above that. Now, what's interesting is that this is self-interested for Adele, right? If she does this, she creates more loyalty. And that probably creates even longer term fans. And you could very easily argue, well, this works out better for Adele in the long run. And that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It could work out better for the long run for all of us, too. Right. The same the same kind of thinking um, and the same way of approaching our goals of not just maximizing for now me uh, is that's that's the secret. That's the secret. That's the secret to more meaningful success. That's the secret to to being meaningful in, in culture. Um, and so Adele's choice is, yes, it's it's easier for someone like her or Taylor Swift to give up some of the money. Right. But we also all know that there are moments where you don't take the job at the higher salary because the commute's too long. It requires too many other sacrifices. Right. We as individuals, I think know how to navigate those kinds of situations. They're hard, they're hard. They're especially hard if we're in a place of desperation. But collectively, collectively, it's like we've given up. We, we, we aren't even trying to make decisions for anything other than financial outcomes, in part because we've lacked the language or the justification. And so I believe my, my book is a part of a, 
not this is not I mean I'm the only person making this argument, uh, but I think that this is the trend that's happening now. And and I think in in this idea of proposed bentoism, I think I have a, a practical way for us to get there. And that brings us to bentoism, the bento box, the yeah. thing. Now I'm dying. I needed people to understand all of that so yeah. that we can get into this. Um, it's a really interesting concept. Lay that out for people. And then know that I'm going to press you until I understand how oh, to yeah, use totally. my bento box totally. to, to get to decision making. Well, I, um, I, you know, I just, uh, I'm a curious person. I love to read. I love to understand. And I'm like, I'm very non-judgmental. Like I really, I, I, I there's a, I learned a phrase recently of metamodernism. After postmodernism is metamodernism and metamodernism is to look at things without judgment and simply look for what's useful. And the idea is that Sign like this is up. this is the this is the current view is that like you can hate Amazon while also reading like Bezos's shareholder letter every year because he's <laughs> like brilliant, right? You know, and it's like there's this you're just simply looking for the utility of things. And that this is like this emergent mindset. So I, I, again, I'm like, I'm not a, I'm not a bomb thrower. I'm a reformer. I'm like a, you Dude, know, I love it, that about your book. Uh, honestly, yeah. I wasn't, um, I'm never sure when people have sort of this grand idea of where we're going to go, if it's just a reaction against what we have, or if it's like you said, finding the utility. Um, and that comes across in every, every interview I've heard with you, certainly in the book. Um, it's very even handed. Like you said, it's not like capitalism is some evil thing. It's just incomplete. And so, you know, where do we yeah. go? What do we take that's working? What do we discard that's not? Uh, I find that very useful. I started giving talks while I was CEO about this idea of like, there's this value system that's running away. Um, I first started talking about it when I saw my neighborhood in New York City, uh, the Lower East Side flip from gentrification and just like, watching this insanity of every storefront around me turning into a bank and being like, what, how does this make sense? And, um, and just started talking about this in a way that it was like people could feel it. Um, so I, I spent, I spent a couple of years or many years just trying to understand this, reading a lot of philosophy, a lot of economics, like kind of going to the sources, like what is the, what is the argument for utilitarianism? Why is money the most utilitarian value? What is the, how have we defended other values? And my belief, my assumption was always that financial value is simply the first value we've learned to rationally express. That financial value is a proxy for goodness that is mathematical and that is tradable and that is universal and that that process can be repeated for other values. 